0: um it's my privilege now to um introduce uh, joel sheasley who's going to give our keynote lecture for the morning um uh, recent book by joel fox river testimony he's going to tell you all about the work he's doing these days as someone who bears witness to the fox river and his work as a painter i joel i tried to calculate how long i've known you and i gave up the there, wasn't, there weren't that many miles on my odometer anymore, but uh, we've known each other for decades. Joel and, and Joan are dear friends. Very happy to have Joel here today. For many years, um, he taught um, art at Wheaton College. Um, he's been a realist painter most of his life, but especially moving toward the landscape. Um, we've had the privilege of doing lots of things together, conferencing together, did a workshop for graduate students at um region college decades ago that was great fun um we've done some book things together um we've shown art together um it's just wonderful to have you here today joan as well so please welcome joel Sheesley.
1: well thank you very much cam uh it has been a real privilege to know cam for all these years and to see all the different, really exciting things that he's been doing. I was shocked when I saw this fantastic, uh, outlay here and, uh, it's a real privilege and honor to be invited up here and, and talk to you all about uh, landscape. Actually, the talk that I'm going to give is kind of like an illustration of Cam's lecture that he just gave. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to provide some pictures for what he just uh, presented. Um, My title is The Land, Uh, Belonging and Bewilderment. And what I'd like to do is to uh, bring forward for you some of the issues and concerns that have uh, occurred to me in the past 10 years or so as my work has been centered almost completely on land and landscape. So I began with this photograph of a fire tower on Mount Otsiantha in the town of Stamford, New York on the northern edge of the Catskill Mountains. This is the land that first captured my imagination as a child. And my brother and I would climb the tower, and the ranger in the cabin at the top would let us join him in his survey of the mountains all around. Looking at this picture now, I can still feel the land stretching away. I feel its pull on my mind and heart. Though it is not homesickness, the closest thing to what I feel as I recall this landscape is homesickness. Somehow this vista makes me aware, even at the revel in its beauty, that my belonging is not really a settled matter. I feel deeply attached how alien to the land that is spread out before me. And I have a deep and urgent sense of longing, but a longing so undefined that I'm bewildered by it. Bewilderment is at the heart of my relationship to the land and at the heart of my work as a painter of landscapes, that I might be wilder. That's the implication of the word. The landscape is my home, but why, in its presence, do I feel an alien call? I know that the landscape and I are finite entities made of the same stuff, but I also intuit that we are both imprinted with transcendence that feels otherworldly and genuinely wild. So my bewilderment emerges as I live in the world as one who belongs, and yet feels the call of the wild. But my starting point is in belonging. As finite creatures, the landscape and I are of a piece. We are not wild to each other. Though we may seem at times to be in conflict or competition, we are not polar opposites. Our relationship is more like what St. Francis suggested. We're sisters and brothers. We, non-human and human life, along with everything else in the earthly realm, constitute a grand ecosystem in which we all belong. We are, in a sense, interwoven to become the landscape that is. So where does the idea of the wild come from? if not from an essential divide or separation between humans and nature. I think the perception of what modern people call the wild has arisen in human consciousness as a symbol, a symbol of transcendent forces beyond nature. When we look deeply into ourselves or into the rest of the natural world, we become aware of the aura of an other, of an alienness, of a kind of imminent spirit that inhabits and in- animates everything. And I think we identify this aura symbolically as the wild. The homesickness and longing that I experience on Mount Otsayantha are my response to a landscape acting as a symbol that simultaneously invites me home while it calls me away. The sense of being a resident alien grips me even in my own backyard. I think as we begin to accept the Anthropocene as a fair characterization of our geologic age, the tension between resident and alien, between our sense of belonging to while called beyond nature is due for more careful examination. And so at the outset in that regard, I think it's important to note that this alien call I'm talking about is not a voice of a kind of God of the gaps revealing itself as a kind of answer for what we don't know about nature. As far as I can tell, the alien call answers nothing. It fills no void in human knowledge. It manifests itself as unknowable, as an enigmatic presence comparable to the I am met by Moses in the burning bush. So what of the implications of the Anthropocene? In the Anthropocene, we face the evidence that humans and nature, people and land are coextensive And some thinkers have illustrated this in striking ways by suggesting that we have reached the end of nature. Climate change and developments in the fields of artificial intelligence and biotechnology challenge the traditional notion of a nature that is other, whose workings and secrets are beyond critique, calculation, and control by human beings. We can no longer view nature as the great static, eternal, and independent force that regulates our lives. We must begin, instead, to understand nature as a powerful but finite dependent force, like ourselves, whose dynamic character constantly responds to changing circumstances. So we look for a cosmology, one that includes ourselves, within which to think about nature. and Land is central in our revisioning of human culture and nature. If land can be a symbol of the wild, as I just suggested, it also can become a symbol of our incorporation into a place, as as Cam was telling us at the very beginning. Land absorbs the impact of human habitation and is the ground on which human cultural activity builds. And land, when it is inhabited this way, becomes a symbol of a culture's belonging. In The Land, Place's Gift, Promise, and Challenge in Biblical Faith, Walter Brueggemann writes about the physical and symbolic significance of land for ancient Israel. It's a story of possession and dispossession that continues to the present day. And fueling passion for this land is the symbolic meaning of the land. More than a concept, the symbol implies a divine promise that a specific people belong to a particular place. So, the promised land becomes part of a people's identity. But this kind of identification with the land also leads to all kinds of conflict. Is the promise and the right to belong exclusive? Identity politics leads to violence in the land. The lesson, I think still unlearned, is that belonging in the land is always a matter of negotiation. Land conflicts may be complex, but they are finite, they are political realities. Matters of belonging are difficult and they require constant negotiation. Not so with bewilderment. We work out our belonging on the finite level Bewilderment, on the other hand, occurs in relationship to the supernatural. In pre-modern times, all creatures, human and non-human, were thought of as bewildered because all creatures owe their existence to a divine external hand. All creatures share a divine imprint that resides in finite bodies. Immersed in this divine cosmology, St. Paul saw humans and nature sharing mutually in a state of uncomfortable tension. And he wrote, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The groaning of creation and of ourselves is not about conflicts between humans and nature. These are finite political conflicts. They are negotiable issues. Okay, so the groaning of creation and of ourselves is not about conflicts between humans and nature. These are political conflicts. They're negotiable issues that can be resolved through the courts. We have, you know, the uh, United Nations negotiating climate change issues. We have people all over the world trying to struggle with these finite concerns. What cannot be resolved is the ontological question, tension. The awareness in both land and humans that our origin lies elsewhere. We see this In the writing of C.S. Lewis, where preoccupation with the bewilderment of divine origin was a regular theme. It runs through his Chronicles of Narnia. And in Till We Have Faces, his character Psyche says, The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to reach the mountain, to find the place where all the beauty came from, my country, The place where I ought to have been born. And she continues, Do you think it all meant nothing? All the longing, the longing for home? Longing for the place where I ought to have been born is stirred up by the beauty of the place where we find ourselves in the present. And as a landscape artist, I'm drawn to that beauty and I try to celebrate it in my work. But I'm aware that there is an aestheticizing tendency in the way we've been talking about land that risks losing sight of its complex character. Is beauty the only aspect of land that I have an obligation? What do I owe to the history of the land? So an example from American art history might, might help us here. This is where I think Painters, in particular, can be accused of violating the integrity of the land that they actually want to represent. Consider the way art historian Tim Beringer writes about the view of Montevideo, this painting you're seeing on the screen, painting by the early 19th century artist, American artist Thomas Cole. Beringer accuses Cole of allowing his aesthetic preferences to obscure the land that he painted. Barringer says, Coal had, in fact, forced the materials of the American landscape into a pre-existing format by quite violent means. Cole enforced discipline on the scene, transforming a modest summer residence hewn from the wilderness into the equivalent of a Wilton house or a Stourhead. Like Capability Brown's teams of surveyors and planters, lake diggers, and mound-builders, says Barringer, Cole smoothed and shaped the landscape before him until it matched a pre-existing pattern. Farringer's argument is that Thomas Cole, while on the one hand renouncing the British landscape tradition, on the other hand recapitulated it in his American landscapes, essentially transposing the hierarchy of a European landscape concept to a landscape in which it had no historical connection. Barringer accuses Cole of using violent means and places Cole's artistry in the category of surveyors and planters, lake diggers and mound builders, all aggressive actors in the landscape. The implication is that Cole was insensitive to the land's history, that his work is an attempt to rewrite that history under the influence of a European template. But the insensitivity to the land's history is all around us. Literal surveyors and planters, lake diggers, and mound builders abound. There are precious few acres in Illinois, where I'm from, that through human use have not been turned upside down and have been smoothed and shaped in ways foreign to their original character. Industrial agriculture, urban development, resource extraction, energy production, the transportation industry. Together, these have destroyed almost every vestige of the state's natural prairies and forever altered rivers, lakeshores, and woodlands. So how do I pair my interest in beauty with this reality in the land? So I need a reality check, in a sense. And uh, I turned to place like the Center for Land Use Interpretation, CLUI. It's an organization headquartered in Culver City, California, and devoted to bringing object, objective clarity to land use. CLUI maintains a website, they host exhibitions, hold seminars, and distribute a newsletter focused on land use. The lay of the land, their winter uh, newsletter from 2022 featured a variety of stories about land use, ranging from a story about New York State's Adirondack Park to the flow of goods through Amazon fulfillment centers to a story about real estate listing photographs of properties in Los Angeles. CLUI surveys the American landscape with the intention of, quote, finding new meanings in the intentional and incidental forms that we individually and collectively create. So CLUI is committed to reminding us that the land of the free and the home of the brave actually consists of real parcels of ground whose worth is figured not on these myths about freedom and bravery, but on its pragmatic use in a system of consumption. Their work at CLUI helps me to find, or to be m- mindful of the historical and political reality of land. No, but there is a sense in which land use, regardless of human use, all plant and animals arrange, itself, arrange themselves in the land, adapting to the land, but also adapting land to their individual needs. Animals modify land for nesting, denning, and mating rituals, and they mark out territories, defending them with their lives, if need be. You know, we think in terms of plant and animal kingdoms, and I wonder if this language shouldn't help us to realize the animal politics of these domains. The use of land is always intentional, always requires negotiation. We human beings are unique can step back and question our use of land. We can observe cause and effect and predict future outcomes. All living things are engaged in land use, but we human beings are charged with being responsible for the way we use it. Land use can feel perfectly normal or natural during some stages of development, but it begins to fall into question as aspirations for human existence become more complex and demanding. So, at some point, we might even ask whether a particular use of land is inappropriate, or at least inappropriate in a particular location. When that happens, then, through the legal system, we impose limits on land use. When the law enters in, different lands become subject to different degrees of legal protection. So the law shapes the landscape through zoning and by issuing use permits. And these permits actually interpret for us what the land is. So here we've got this zoning sign, you know, that says medical senior or other, or more, I guess it says. Uh, possibilities, telling us what that land is. Land legally designated as a forest preserve we value differently from land designated as a trailer park. And this would be true even if these two uses shared the same topography and were only separated by a thin fence. So here's a picture of a place just up the street from where I live where We have this big forest preserve and this triangle of a trailer park. If you're standing in the trailer park, all you know is this is a trailer park. If you're standing in the forest preserve, all you know is this is a forest preserve. (laughs) But they're the same land. So we take the assigned legal identity of land as some kind of an indication of its fundamental nature. And I think this happens with all instances of resource extraction where we just accept the idea that something is a mine or a dump or a fishery or a woodlot. But these are political designations and they have little to do with any sort of telos in the land itself. As in Tim Berger's critique of Thomas Cole, the law imposes a foreign meaning on the land. So what about politics of imposed meanings. Both law and art interpret the landscape through political lenses. But while the political nature of the the law is self-evident, the political nature of art is more subtle. Not as obvious in its impact as legal permits or zoning laws, art can be a potent force in shaping our understanding of the landscape. So, Cole's depictions of the 19th century lands, lands, American landscape carried Cole's politics, his ecological, social, moral, and religious concerns. And the Hudson River School artists who followed Cole's lead would use the landscape both to promote and to question the expansion of European style civilization across the North American continent. And here the political You know, intention of Frederick Church's painting is pretty evident, turning the sky into an American flag. The catchphrase, all art is political, reminds us that artworks carry political messaging, both through the subject matter they represent and through the methods by which they are produced. This is true because there's no disinterested lens through which to view subject matter. And every method for making art has a cultural history. Artworks teach us to interpret the landscape through the lens and cultural heritage of the artist. So I ask myself, how does my artistic practice fit in this? I work within a Western European art tradition that privileges objective observation and representational verisimilitude. I frame and create closure for my vision in rectangular formats. I interpret the lay of the land through linear perspective. I begin all my landscape work en plein air, and that places me in a subjective relationship with my motif that favors a journalistic or documentary sort of realism. I choose views of the landscape based on compositions that I have learned even unconsciously from the European easel painting tradition. I approach painting as a tradition founded on craftsmanship and skills mastery. I evaluate the landscape in terms of its pictorial possibilities and am haunted by the term picturesque. My experience in the landscape is personal and emotional, but as you can see, my artistic method leans towards objective calculation. So all in all, my working methods are derivative of the analytic and naturalistic mindset that fostered the rise of modernity in the 17th and 18th centuries. And it was this critical, calculative, and control-seeking methodology in the emerging modern era that fostered human separation from nature and gave rise to a utilitarian attitude in which the natural world is regarded as a kind of cachet to be mined and exploited. So I'm aware that my artistic methods as manifestations of modernity are symbols of a mindset that has been a major culprit in the social breakdown and ecological devastation taking place all around. Well, contemporary art, of course, reacts against this. In the politics of contemporary art, Realism not charged with overt social, psychological, ecological, or gender-based messaging is suspected of a kind of naivete at best, or denigrated as regressive at worst. In the contemporary politic, informed progressive artistic approaches to the landscape rely on insight and technique gained through non-Western perspectives that develop a feminist optic that are collaborative, whose forms embody indeterminacy, that utilize non-traditional media, and that embrace spirituality and so-called non-rational understanding. So just to fill this out a little bit, here's a kind of example of this sort of sensibility from the Whitney Museum uh, in an exhibition called Between the Waters from 2018 a group of artists were being presented, and the museum uh, describes them in this way. This exhibition brings together artists from across the United States, whose work responds to the precarious state of the environment through a personal lens. Experimenting with form and narrative, in painting, video, and sculpture, these artists address how ideology, as much as technology, industry, and architecture, impacts all living things. Though each contends with facts or histories that are real and observable, none takes a documentary approach. Rather, these artists adopt a highly subjective position, embracing emotion, intuition, spirituality, and myth to help understand our intrinsic place within the natural world. And they share the sense that the scientific or rational thought can reinforce a limited view of our planet and its inhabitants. So this kind of artistic focus on environmental concerns has its roots in the 60s and 70s, 1960s and 70s, with experiments that uh, Cam showed us some of, experiments in land art and uh, in ecofeminist art. I think of Walter DiMaria's Earth Room at Dia Beacon in New York. We just saw a nice slide up. The work of Mirela Lederman whose work engaged the New York City Department of Sanitation. Of Anna Mendieta, who's known for her earth body work. Of Sue Cole, a defender of animal rights. Of Agnes Dennis, who planted a wheat field in what is now Battery Park in New York City. More recently, Daniel Lee, a gender non-conforming Indonesian-Brazilian artist, has created works that explore life, death, and time as human and non-human life forms interact indeterminately in impressive gallery installations. I think works like these generate the context for an energetic criticism discussion of landscape in contemporary art. They respond overtly to the Anthropocene's call for revisions in both nature and culture. And by engaging new media, re-examining concepts of craft, crossing traditional subject disciplinary boundaries, and relying on collaborative methods and choosing non-Western sources for knowledge, they begin to shape a new consciousness about humans, about how humans and nature interact. So, given the almost hermetic and uh, nature of my artistic practice and my Euro-centered artistic methods that hail to centuries in the past, it would seem that I have more or less painted myself out of any significant contribution to contemporary thinking about the land. you don't find that funny, I don't either. <laughs> So, I wonder, is there a role for a kind of rationality and closure as an artistic expression? I think all artists have to confront the question of what form their art should take. And in the Anthropocene, we speak of tipping points, points at which the whole of the natural world as we know it might shift and rapidly slide into radically and dangerously different forms from what we know. And that thought invites an apocalyptic vision that for many of us is a call to an apocalyptic art. And the argument then is that art should mirror the ethos of the time in which it was made. Poet and critic Christian Wyman puts it this way, Because our experience of the world is chaotic and fragmented and because we've lost our faith not only in those abstractions by means of which men and women of the past ordered their lives, but also in language itself, it would be naive to think that we could have a rational order in our art. But then in the same essay, Wyman goes on to say, quote, I believe that it's sometimes precisely in those works that exhibit the greatest degree of formal coherence, the greatest sense of closure that a reader may experience and thereby more likely endure the most intense anxiety and uncertainty. So I think of landscapes like Rackstraw Downs' at the confluence of two ditches bordering a field with four radio towers from 1995 or Lucian Freud's Waste Ground with Houses, Paddington, from 1972. In each of these works, rationality and the powers of critique, calculation, and control dominate. Yet each still presents a painfully fragmented world for us to contend with. And we recognize that the rationality and closure of these works are actually manifestations of our own rational minds. Consequently, we are not helpless victims or innocent bystanders to what these works present. The logical structure of the paintings leads us to the logic of our own complicity in what we see. Elsewhere in his book, Ambition and Survival, whoops, I guess I'm... I'll stay right there. Uh, Wyman quotes John Ruskin, who wrote, The more beautiful the art, the more it is essentially the work of people who feel themselves wrong, who are striving for the fulfillment of a law and the grasp of a loveliness which they have not yet attained, which they feel even farther and farther from attaining, the more they strive for it. So this begins, I think, to sound a little bit like the bewilderment, with which I began this talk. But I think, again, it's important that such bewilderment is not based and expressed only in terms of aesthetics. Lewis's longing to reach the mountain, to find the place where all the beauty came from, is based in a cosmology that recognizes that culture and nature are finite entities. In his book, Thinking Nature, Sean McGrath, argues that human beings are the thinking component in this finite culture-nature mix. So there's a historical world, a real world to deal with. And one force contributing to the shape of this world is the force of human thought. The Anthropocene reminds us of the global dimensions of this reality. And it reminds us, I think, that we are not, again, reminds us again, that we are not talking about a wild world. This reality is reinforced by my experience in Illinois. There's no wilderness in my state that has not been affected by the human mind and its cultural outcomes. The world that I address is not a wild world, but a bewildered world, a modern world, the product of modernity. It's a world caught up in in the potential devastation of its own suffocating politics. And it's no wonder that in that situation, some people would seek a kind of religious or spiritual relief in creating a kind of uh, nature divinity out of the Gaia hypothesis. But doing that only turns human culture into a kind of irritant or stain (laughs) on this otherwise spiritual or divine world. The urging from the scientific community is more likely to embrace political action than religious mysticism. Climate scientists have been clear in their warning that climate disaster may be averted if humanity takes action. Catherine Hayhoe, chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy says, the world has changed before, and usually not because world leaders sat down and decided it had to. It's changed because ordinary people push for change. He-Ho goes on to say, UK researcher Finley Green compares the challenge we face of halting climate change to the challenges fe- facing huge social movements of the past, such as ending slavery. I think the comparison of climate change to the huge social moment movements of the past, like ending slavery, makes the point for us. Our ecological problems are political problems that we need to negotiate in consortium with all the active forces in this finite world. And given the real politic of finite nature and culture, and given the role modernity has played in bringing us to the present state of affairs, I am not convinced that an art practice whose methods are derived from a modern mindset cannot, in relevant ways, contribute to our understanding and appreciation of the state of land today. Were I confronting a wild land, Western objectivity and closure might be inappropriate, but I do not confront a wild land. The Anthropocene reminds us that the whole globe has already been marked by the mind of modern human beings. I'd like to think that my framed representations of the landscape offer what Frederick Buechner claimed is the function of frames, to offer the opportunity to form a second thought. A second thought is only possible when what appears within the frame resembles in some way what one has experienced outside the frame. Apart from some notion of resemblance, a second thought is not possible. The purpose of a second thought is to give the viewer an opportunity to ask a question about original experience. What does the painting's form suggest about my experience of the world? And what does that mean to me? To ask these questions of a landscape painting is to initiate a subjective relationship to the painting, subject, to the land. And that subjective relationship is the seed of stewardship. In this vein, cellist Yo-Yo Ma was quoted recently in the New York Times saying, culture is able to look at the macro universe and the micro universe and bring it back to a size that we can see feel, touch, and analyze. Ma is working on a project he calls Our Common Nature in which he travels to different national parks and other natural areas, meets people who work to preserve these areas and interacts with musicians for whom these landscapes have deep meaning. They talk and perform their music on site hoping to achieve a musical dialogue with the environment. And reflecting on his visit to New River Gorge National Park in West Virginia, he said he was impressed with the railroad tracks that follow the river. And he said, quote, Humanity exists as part of the environment. We know that those tracks carried the coal from West Virginia that fueled our industrial revolution. So I see within the mountains and the rivers that are millions of years old, human activity but within a big context of time. Well, I am no Yo-Yo Ma, but working on my own level, like him, I am honing an ancient craft as an extension of and in response to the natural world, to frame it, to bring it, quote, to a size we can see, feel, touch, and analyze, to provide the impulse for a second thought, these are my intentions. So let me just give you a quick run through of some of the projects I've been involved with. In 2014, I engaged in a year long project in collaboration with the Park District of Wheaton to paint the landscape of the Lincoln Marsh Natural Area. Lincoln Marsh is a 150 acre example of the coextensive work of nature and culture. The marsh is the result of political negotiation that began in the 1960s and 70s to save this site as a natural area. And that effort, the stewardship that ensued, and the plants and animals that live in Lincoln Marsh have produced the quote-unquote natural area that is a prize in the community today. Like so many landscapes, the Lincoln Marsh natural area became visible as a natural area only when it transitions through law to be protected as natural. This amounted to a kind of reframing of the landscape through law. My work as a painter was to pictorially reframe the marsh, making it visible to residents now in artistic terms. A second project Um, I was involved in, began in 2017, when I engaged uh, with the Conservation Foundation uh, in Northern Illinois, whose stated purpose is to save land and save rivers. Over a period of three years, I painted landscapes of the Fox River watershed as it winds its way through about 60 miles of Kane, Kendall, and LaSalle counties in Illinois. During that period, I was invited by the Conservation Foundation to offer talks and show examples of paintings from the project to a variety of Fox River interested groups. Ultimately, Aurora University and the Shingothi Center hosted a major exhibition of all these works and hosted a Fox River symposium that was co-sponsored by the Conservation Foundation. Then in 2020, I was invited by the Edith Farnsworth House, Ludwig Mies van der Rohe's iconic modernist house on the banks of the Fox River in Plano, Illinois, to be artist in residence. I painted landscape of the landscapes of the Farnsworth property, with the aim of drawing attention uh, to the riparian landscape on which Mies' architectural masterpiece sits. The paintings were exhibited in the Barnesworth Gallery at the Farnsworth House Campus under the title Less and More, Modernism Greets the River Landscape. I'm currently working on two collaborative projects, one to culminate in an exhibition at the Mays Lake Peabody Estate in Oak Brook, Illinois, and the other in preparation for an exhibition at the Wilson Gallery at Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory in Batavia, Illinois both exhibitions to happen later this year, at least scheduled to. The Mays Lake Peabody exhibition is sponsored by the Forest Preserve District of DuPage and will feature paintings of the West Branch of the DuPage River in DuPage County. Like Lincoln Marsh and like the Edith Farnsworth House property, the West Branch of the DuPage River landscape has been subject to significant use over the years. The water, initially a prize resource for life and potential source for power, eventually became a menace, an abject subject, as development led to pollution and flooding. Now, a different generation of human actors have stepped in and are working to restore the river. The river conjures both belonging and bewilderment, but this is not, this naturalized river is not wild. It's regulated by laws, some of which protect it, while others still allow land use that is detrimental to river life. So, let me draw this to a conclusion. It's become commonplace to see articles written about the physical, psychological, and spiritual healing properties of the natural world. And I think this healing has a lot to do with what I've been calling bewilderment, The call to be wilder is a call to look at towards C.S. Lewis's place where I ought to have been born, his place where all the beauty came from. Art and human culture can metaphorically frame that place in ways that make it accessible. And Yo-Yo Ma's comment that the arts have the capacity to look at the macro universe and the micro universe and bring it back to a size that we can see, feel, touch, and analyze is directly in line with Frederick Beekner's comment about the purpose of framing, to give us the opportunity for a second thought. Humans are the thinking component of nature. Our capacity to think as we do, to critique, calculate, and control makes us the resident aliens that we are. Flannery O'Connor put it this way, To know oneself is to know one's region. It is also to know the world, and it is also, paradoxically, a form of exile from that world. And O'Connor continued, The writer's value is lost, both to himself and to his country, as soon as he ceases to see that country as a part of himself. And to know oneself is, above all, to know what one lacks. This sense of alienation, of exile, of lack, leads us back to the sentiment of John Ruskin's comment that the more beautiful the art, the more it is essentially the work of people who feel themselves wrong. And we are led back to the even more ancient wisdom of St. Paul who, long before the Anthropocene, recognized that humans and nature are coextensive. We know, he wrote to the Romans, that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the paints of childbirth, right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves groan inwardly. So, this is the legacy a legacy of groaning that I accept as a painter of landscapes. My artistic practice is not driven by a desire to pretend a piece, but rather through the contradictions of my own artistic methods and thinking to recognize my belonging and to be drawn through my bewilderment to the source of the truly wild. Thank you.